Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I'm really excited to welcome Paul Carcaterra to the Philacrosophy podcast. We all know Paul from his broadcasting on ESPN, but we're going to hear all about his roots coming up through the ranks at Yorktown and the farm up through Syracuse, where he was an All-American and won a national championship, and then into his business side with Maverick and, of course, the broadcasting. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the as Terry Foy from Inside Lacrosse calls it, the golden age of lacrosse. But, Kark, welcome to the show. Really fired up to chat with you. Thank you. No, it's, a, it's always a pleasure to take an opportunity and, and discuss uh, the golden age of lacrosse, but more importantly, too, to hit rewind sometimes and put things in perspective in, in regards to the sport and what it's meant to me. Yeah. Well, let's start with, uh, let's start with Yorktown. I actually live next door to a – Yorktown guy named Chris Decutis. I don't know if you remember the Decutis family, but uh, they were. I don't, but you should probably keep your doors locked. (laughs) (laughs) Survival of the fittest up there, man. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But um, but he's told me story after story about the farm, and I've 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 heard you talk about it, and 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 uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about how you got started in lacrosse and, and a little bit about that, about that sort of really interesting dynamic where it was, what's his name? Mr. What? Charlie Murphy. Yeah. Charlie Princeton Murphy. class in 1934. He's in the national hall of fame. So his father was a, was a very prominent uh, plumber in New York city um, back in the golden age of the city and the growth of New York city. Uh, did the plumbing on the Empire State Building. So he, you know, he came from a, a, a wealthy family, um, caught the lacrosse bug when he was at Princeton in the early 30s and loved the game so much that it just became a huge part of his life. And he went to Harvard Law School, and I think he, he lasted there only a, a couple months. He was more interested in playing lacrosse and, and joining the club ranks and, and doing all that fun extracurricular stuff. And I think some of the extracurricular stuff kind of got in his way and his, his father who had a couple of houses up in, um, in, in upstate New York is that what people would call it because it was about 40 miles North, uh, yeah. Yorktown of New York city sent him up there to kind of clean up and, and sober up and, and get his life together. And when he did, and when he planted his roots, uh, he funded the first Yorktown lacrosse program in the, in the early 1960s. And, and no one really had, lacrosse and from a public school standpoint no one had it so charlie murphy comes in he he funds the program he gives a gift of i think about 500 dollars at the time which is a lot of money back then to kind of get things rolling and then ever since he was he was the the father of of, of yorktown lacrosse and it, it didn't stop there just with like the, the monetary uh support that he would give it was, it was much more than that what it was was he had a three acre apple orchard in his backyard that he turned into like a lacrosse training atmosphere with three or four goals, a wall to, uh, to play wall ball against. And, um, it, it was, it was more than that though, even because
because it was a place for everyone to to kind of convene and it was it was so unique i tell people all the time it has like an indiana basketball feel to it like where you can't replicate it so when i was in fourth grade instead of taking the bus back home to my house i used to take the bus straight to mr murph's house and i was playing in his backyard and playing wall ball and there was no generation gap there so like there were guys like tim and tom nelson and rob fetchley these legends who played at syracuse and army and Scott Marr, who's the coach at Albany and was a Johns Hopkins lacrosse star and a great high school player at Yorktown. Like everyone would be there from a fifth grader to a senior in high school to a guy who maybe graduated college 10 years ago. There were no real generation gaps and it just made the community feel of lacrosse amazing um, for a young kid like me. So you, you, you kind of get the bug. You want to play more and more lacrosse. You're playing in a grassroots kind of environment um, beyond belief. And Mr. Murph had an open door policy too. So after we would shoot and play wall ball, we'd go into his house and we'd kind of hang out and we drank cherry Cokes and ate stale pretzels and watched tons of lacrosse films. And there'd be 10, 15 guys in there some days. And, you know, he taught me a lot too. I was, I was one of the closer kids to Mr. Murph. I mean, like my family would have him at the holidays. He became a staple of, of, of my life. He's one of the most influential people ever in my life, hands down. But he also taught me discipline and hard work, too. Like, I was responsible for cutting wood and making sure his, his grass was mowed. So it wasn't just handouts. Like, there was a lot of, of great teaching-type um, moments with, with Mr. Murph. But it was, it was a special, special time. Uh, I don't think it will ever be replicated. I mean, times change. I mean, my parents didn't even think twice when I told them, hey, I'm going up to this guy Mr. Murph's house to play lacrosse. I mean, today, today's day and age is a little bit different. Um, but I also would say like Yorktown was really cool from the standpoint that I never had idols growing up that were like NFL superstars or NBA guys or major league baseball. My idols were the guys in the hometown that I grew up in. Right. Like I, I was a, I was a ball boy in fifth grade and you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be like, like them. I didn't want to be like, you know, Michael Jordan or Tony Dorsett. I wanted to be like, Tom Nelson. I wanted to be like a Scott Marr. I wanted to be like guys who were, you know, 10, 15 years older than me because they, they were such a great example of, of how to do things and, and how to succeed in the sport. Yeah. So cool. I mean, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's in this day and age, you just don't see that type of community uh, drop in pickup, uh, except for, you know, when I did my podcast with Scotty Marr and I asked him how the Thompsons got so good. He said, that's exactly how they did it. It was in the backyard. It was with all generations. It was at the box. And I think that you were actually still seeing this on uh, various, you know, Iroquois nations. Um, and we're not seeing it um, across across our nation. And I really feel that, and I'm on this huge kind of crusade about it because I really believe in resurrecting the Sandlot. And that's exactly what made Yorktown so special and what makes so many of these uh, Native Americans so special. Yeah. And, and you know what? Like, I'm one of these guys that like, I, I never say like the way I grew up was better because times change and there's so many like external factors. But like, when is a kid these days like have three, four hours where he's like totally disconnected to to technology, right? Like we didn't have technology. I didn't have a cell phone when I was in middle school. So like the, the, the improv of, of, of having, you know, moments where I had to fill time and use my imagination and, and, and think outside the box without any assistance 
from from a mobile device or communicating through a mobile device. It, it was a different time. So like, I don't think it will ever be replicated. I'm not saying that the way kids are growing up now is, is bad. There's a lot of great things that I wish I had that kids have these days. It's just, it's just different. And um, yeah, the Sandlot though, like when I spoke to Lyle Thompson a few weeks ago, he told me he practiced like five hours a day sometimes, like on a Saturday or Sunday in his backyard, just playing. Yeah. I mean, you don't see that. I live in Ridgefield, Connecticut. And I pass these homes that have like nice yards and, and, and lacrosse goals and pitch backs and all that. And I, I rarely see a kid actually shooting on the goal. You know, lots organized these days because the kids get their, their fix in an organized structured lacrosse setting. So yeah. if they're playing 60 games in a year and you know, they have to go to high school practice or middle school practice a few days a week. And then the summer club lacrosse kicks in, they kind of get their lacrosse fix. Right. So like, they don't want to like, go out and, and play lacrosse because they're playing so much structured lacrosse. Whereas I think when you think of guys like Lyle Thompson um, and his family members and part of his community, um, I think they play a lot less like structured lacrosse. Yeah. I know they play a ton of box in the summer and do all that stuff, but it, it, it's not, it, it's, it's not in the same like structured type yeah. of, of, of setting where they're practicing like with a coach three days a week during the week. Do you know what I mean? I do. And, and, and in fact, there's, there's like very little driving, you know, too. So, I mean, like these kids are like, you know, driving an hour for everything they're doing half the time. Yeah. I mean, in Fairfield. Yeah, absolutely. It's just cross town. And and so all of a sudden you spent, you know, 45 minutes each way, an hour and a half in the car. Um, And, you know, there isn't that much time, but I also think there's a, like our sport has lacked a little bit of a, a pickup element to it. Um, in that if you think about basketball, you know, if, if you were to be like, right, I'm just going to show up at practice and then shoot, shoot baskets in the driveway, you really wouldn't be that good of a basketball player compared to the guys that play two on two, one on one, you know, one on, you know, 21, three on three games, constantly playing the game in these sort of live scenarios. I think kids do put a fair amount of time into their games, but they tend to put them they tend to put their time in on just shooting or, you know, there's some kids, you know, they shoot nonstop and uh, their wall ball nonstop. It's all good, but you need to play with and against people to be great. And I, I do think that is the elements of pick up the sandlot, the way that um, it, it happens on, uh, you know, with, with the Thompsons and all, all the rest of the, the, the kids that play backyard lacrosse and they, with generation to generation, they just show up in the box and they just play. I think there's something about that, that, really expedites your development. Oh, a hundred percent. You're, you're precisely right. But it also allows you to kind of implement all those things that you're working on your own and you take chances and risks. And when you play in the backyard, you play sandlot, when you play unorganized, like box across, when I say unorganized, I don't mean it like in a negative way, but like it's not structured where like there's a scoreboard and there's, you know, coaches on both sides. It's pickup. What happens in those moments is the skill set that a guy like Lyle spent five hours working on in his backyard. He actually tries things that he might not try in like a formal game. Do you know right. what I mean? Totally. He, he'll he'll take those moments to take a risk and a chance and he uses imagination because what are the consequences if he throws a one-handed pass to his brother who's cutting and, and maybe the ball flies a little bit off his stick and it's right. not a great pass. Totally. And it's like, you know, it's funny because like in this day and age, we are we are in this amazing age where there are so many skilled kids and that, you know, these kids are putting a lot of time into lacrosse. They can literally do any skill. I, I 
you know, you look at like uh, Tohoka and he's got the skill set or Lyle, he's got the skill set. All, all these, all these uh, uh, Native Americans have a skill set, but all these other kids and the Canadians too, for that matter. But a lot of kids can do what they do. They just, they just don't do what they do. They could do it if they, well, they don't have the instincts too. They don't have the instincts. I mean, you could have all the skill in the world. Right. You need, you need the instincts. You need to have that sixth sense of, of when to do it. Right. And I think you get that from your pickup games because you get so many yeah. chances to use those skills that you just start using them. And then they're second nature. You watch like a highlight reel play from, you know, Lyle Thompson. He's done that in the backyard probably a thousand times. And so it's just like nothing for him. It's just like, and so. The Phil Lacrosse podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com. Well, anyways, that's a, it's really cool that that's how you grew up. And then take us uh, to what it was like to arrive at Syracuse um, and play in, uh, you know, one of the most storied programs and with one of the greatest players uh, of any generation, Casey Cobb. Yeah, you know, I look back at my experience at Syracuse and it, it was amazing. Um, we had a couple of Yorktown guys up there. I had Dom Finn, who was a three-time first-team All-American national midfielder of the year. He was like another brother to me. He's best friends with my older brother, Steve, who played college ball at Towson. So he was a senior when I was a freshman. So I had like a built-in older brother right off the bat. And Roy Colsey was there. He was a junior and another first-team All-American from my hometown. Yep. And then Rob Cavavit was my best friend growing up and my teammate in high school. And we went off to Syracuse together. Wow. Um, so it, it, it was amazing. Like I, I felt like right away it was the right spot for me. And, you know, just the, the family atmosphere and just how close the team was, was incredible. And, and I attribute that to Roy Simmons Jr. You know, he was where he is to this day from a coaching standpoint, it's not even close. The most interesting man I've ever played for in all positive way. Um, I look back at my experience playing for him. I don't necessarily think he was uh, the greatest X's and O's coach, but the the power and the belief that he instilled in his players is second to none. Like like from a magical standpoint, I mean, this is the type of guy that would walk up to you in the locker room, you know, an hour and a half before the game when you get to the dome, and maybe the locker room's like half empty because some guys are just shooting on their own, and then some guys are trickling in, getting taped or whatever. And he would sit down next to you and he'd put his arm around you and and tell you like, you know this is your day. They came to watch you play today. Like to tell a college kid that, like, I mean, I, for me, he was, he was unbelievable in terms of instilling power and belief in his players uh, unmatched in the lacrosse world. Like to this day, I, I, I've, I've heard coaches with great pregame speeches, but he knew how to tap into each and every one of his kids and make them feel like they were on top of the world. And he created this atmosphere at Syracuse where like our practices weren't overly long. Um, they, they were structured from the standpoint that we did pretty much the same stuff every day. They were super competitive because he recruited a lot of like alpha males and, and guys who, who wanted to be great. And it meant everything for us to get on the field and be impact players and, and to, to make our presence felt. So 
he didn't have to work too hard in terms of like making the environment competitive. Um, it's just the type of kids he recruited and, and the power and belief that he had in all of us. We just were like a, a bunch of lacrosse guys who, who the sport meant an awful lot to. So like, I, I just think he was, he was amazing in, in that respect. And the other piece of it too, is like, you know, Syracuse went to 22 straight final fours, um, you know, from 1983 to 1998, he was the head coach during that run. Um, so, you know, like 16, 17 years of straight final fours under coach Simmons, and then coach Desco took over and, and had incredible success right off the bat as well. But what I think coach Simmons did, um, which people don't talk about is he, he made lacrosse a lot of fun. And I mentioned all the competitive factors of practice and wanting to be great. But come May, not one kid on our team was ever burnt out. Like, no one was ever talking about, like, I can't wait for the summer to come. I mean, a lot had to do with, like, the upstate weather that we'd get, like, two good weeks of, <laughs> yeah. of, of, of sun a year. So we were barbecuing in May, and we were having a lot of fun, and school was out. We were in the tournament. We were just focusing on lacrosse, and we were eating all our meals together, and we were having fun, and everyone was hanging out. We didn't have any pressure of school. Um, but when May came around, like, I look back, it's it's no shock to me that, no one on our team was ever burnt out because of the system um, that coach Simmons really put in and, and then the belief he had in it. Like we didn't run a lot in practice. Like he never really would put us on the, in, on the end line other than the first three weeks of, of practice were brutal. But after that, like once the season kicked in, everything we did was like game, like speed and running guns. So like you, you kept in shape by just practicing and, and going really hard, but no one was ever burnt out. Amazing. And I'll tell you one thing that I always noticed because I, I coached against uh, you in those days when I was at Yale from 91 to 98. And I grew up playing, you know, went to Brown and played against Syracuse. And everybody always thinks, thinks of Syracuse as running gone and, you know, that they were just, you know, not really coached. But and I say that in a positive way because they were just allowed to take chances. But but I think that what really was amazing about the Syracuse teams that won all those championships through the nineties uh, was just how disciplined the team was. And that like come May Syracuse was making smart decisions with the ball as well as any team that was, you know, basically being, uh, you know, throttled to make those decisions. But it was like almost like an opposite way of doing it. Coach Simmons let, let the team figure it out and let them make their mistakes and then figure out come May how to win as opposed to sort of putting the, the noose around and squeezing so that your team, you know, is limited. And I just found it. No, you're a hundred percent right. hundred percent right. And you know what? Like the funny thing, like you mentioned that I'm thinking about it, it like took care of itself because like you knew like, okay, this is the guy that really should be doing X. And this is the guy that should be doing Y. And, and as the season progressed, everyone was kind of comfortable in their roles. You mentioned Yale. So you were the coach in 94 when we played down in like Vero Beach. That was my yeah. freshman year. Yeah. Okay, I have a funny story here. Um, Dom Finn was a first-team All-American midfielder. This is his senior year, my freshman year. I'm not going to lie to you. The team took Yale a little light. We just beat North Carolina. It was a rematch of the 93 National Championship game. It was the first game of the season. We, we kind of beat them up pretty good. So we go down to Yale. Everyone's feeling really good and puffing their chests out and, and we didn't really take Yale as seriously as, as we should have. Right. And it ended up being like a one goal game. And I'll never forget Dom Finn, the day of the game. And this is like, this is where coach Simmons, like he didn't micromanage you. He, he kind of just let you figure it out on your own. And, and sometimes it came to backfire, 
But Dom Finn was on a jet ski the day of the Yale game, and he got so burnt that I'll never forget. Like in the locker room, he came up to me. He's like, dude, I can't move my arms. This is brutal. And I'll never forget. He was going for a ground ball like by the restraining box. And one of the Yale defensemen kind of gave him a little whack on the back. And he didn't scream because it was a hard check. Dom Finn was checked hard his whole life. He screamed because some dude whacked him right on the sunburn. <laughs> and I'll never forget, we squeaked that game out. It was like a really, really close game. It was a night game. And Andrews. Exa- exactly. But so like, that's where like the Syracuse coach Simmons um, would, would come to backfire once in a while. But the pros way outweighed the cons in terms yeah. of that man he's an amazing man like i talk about mr murph uh charlie murphy from yorktown who i mentioned before i talk about rice simmons jr and i talk about my dad like those are the three most influential people in my life yeah amazing well it was fun to watch those teams and uh, i remember the midfield line of uh dom finn roy colsey and and charlie lockwood that was a heck of a midfield line was that 94 it was but yeah. Yeah, that was 94 but to be quite honest with you, like it was too, too, they didn't, it, they didn't, yeah, it was too, too many, too many, too many big dogs on one line. Like they didn't, they didn't like love playing together. I'm not going to get into like all the, the specifics, but you could tell, like, you could tell, like there was, there was fighting for the ball. I mean, these are three first team all Americans. I mean, Charlie was a first team all American as a sophomore and junior. Yeah. The only reason he wasn't a senior because Roy was younger and got it the year he was a senior, you know what I mean? Like Charlie was a senior. So like we, uh, we always had between the three of them and Dom and Charlie were the same year. And Roy was a year behind. There was always two first team all Americans on a line for three years, which is crazy. Yeah, that is. It's insane. And then, and then add to the mix in 1995, you guys get a freshman, uh, in Casey Powell, that has uh, really uh, been an amazing ambassador for the sport, is just an awesome guy. Um, and uh, I remember watching him, you know, as a senior in high school at Carthage. I went up to go recruiting and was watching an upstate section, whatever section they were in. And I remember watching this kid and being like, oh my God, he is so fast and so skilled. It's absurd. But he still came in and, and, and took, you know, his game to another level um, with his skill and IQ. What was it like to play with Casey? And, and be great friends. You know, he was, he was amazing. Uh, I, I look at Casey athletically too. What people don't realize is he's a decent sized guy. Like he's six yeah. one and wiry, wiry yeah. strong. Like I feel like if he was, was in the state of Texas and, and bought into football at a young age, like he'd be yeah. a safety or, or a corner in the, you know, in the NFL, he was that athletic yeah. um, and competitive too. So like I mentioned, Charlie, Dom and Roy, all great guys. Um, all, you know, unbelievable lacrosse players. Um, Casey had a lot of those characteristics, but he had, he had the, the it factor even beyond that, if it makes any sense, because yeah. like the day he got on campus, I just remember, um, I was an attackman and there was a couple other guys who were playing attack and you and I have talked, um, off the podcast about how, you know, you could be interchangeable. I was an attackman my whole life. When Casey came to, to Syracuse, I, I decided with the coaches, like, you know, I want to play a lot. I want to be on the field. And I had an opportunity to start as a midfielder because like Casey was going to be our, our featured guy along with Rob Cavavit at attack. And they were two unbelievable players. I mean, there's only four guys in Syracuse history with 125 and 120 in terms of goals and assists. Yeah. The three pals and, and Rob Cavavit. Four. Wow. So like we had another guy that like didn't get the pub, but he was unbelievable in Rob. Yeah. So 
we needed some, some midfield help. I, I moved to midfield because I felt like I could help the team. The coaches felt like I could help the team more there. And, and that's where I spent, you know, the majority of, of my career, um, at, at Syracuse. And it was a great decision, but going back to, to Casey, you knew right away. And I watched him when he was a senior in high school, cause they played playoff games on coin field. And I watched him play and I'm like, we have to find a, a place for this guy on the field day one, because he's so good. But when he actually came to campus and his first fall practice, like you just knew right away, like this dude's different. He's, he's kind of quicker than everyone. He's got more skill and he came from a program in Carthage. He's the first Division One lacrosse player ever in the school history. I mean, Jason Kaufman was, was that level of a player for Salisbury, but Casey's the first D1 guy. So when he was in high school, he played wings on face-offs. You know, he rode like a like a champ. He did everything on the field. So like he was a chameleon that could literally do everything. Right. So Casey, Casey comes on to campus his freshman year, and he was so good that he was hard to play with because like there was no patterns in his game. He was all improv and made these like crazy moves. And like, it took a while for everyone to get used to playing with him because like, you didn't know what he was doing. Then he threw these no look passes all the time and like yeah. hitting guys in the head who were on the crease. And like, he was really, really tough to play with in the beginning. I'm not going to lie to you. And that's a, that's a compliment to right. his game because he right. was, he was so good. He, was, he had a freestyle approach to his game. That was, was amazing. So, um, you know, I, I look at Casey too, from a versatility standpoint, people don't realize this. Like Casey was our leading scorer as a freshman when we won the national championship, his sophomore year, he never, never played midfield other than like some wings on faceoffs. He was the national midfielder of the year yeah. at Syracuse as a sophomore. And then he goes back to attack his junior and senior year. And he's the national player of the year. So like to do that in two positions, like, I know there's a lot of similarities, but like, he was literally on a ton of wings. He got caught on defense a bunch yeah. and he had a nasty rap check. Like that dude was so legit as a lacrosse player and he was a chameleon. And like my, my lesson in to, to little kids is like, you know, if you want versatility, when you're young, play all over the field and, and try things because like a guy like Casey just, he literally could do everything. And he was, you know, great free spirited kid. Everyone on the team loved him. Um, uh, he was, he was tough to kind of track down and in, into corner. Like when you were with him, it was the, the most fun in the world, but then like he would disappear for a while. Like, so, and, and that's kind of like, it was, it was a, it was a very like an endearing actual characteristic because like he kind of lived in the moment. And if he was yeah. with one group of guys, that's where his focus was. If he was yeah. with another group of guys, that's where his focus was. And he was a great friend. I mean, we, we lived together for two years and, my wife, Anne, at the time, uh, was a swimmer at Syracuse. And, and I'll never forget, like, Casey's living in my apartment. And Anne was sleeping over one day. And, like, you know, she had the big swimming parker because she was a, a, a swimmer. You know the parkas, right? Yeah. Like, where they just, like, the huge yeah. jackets that are yeah. full of fur. And you yeah. need that if you're a swimmer at Syracuse. And I'll, I'll never forget, like, Casey was walking around campus one day with, like, her parka. And, like, <laughs> she was missing her parka. And he was, like, he went to class with it. He had, he had her clothes on. It was like, this is, this is, <laughs> that's the way he kind of lived his life. Like you'd go out to a bar at night and like you were missing your favorite shirt. If you were Casey's roommate, like there's a good chance he had the shirt on, but he like didn't hide. He's like, yo, you like my shirt? looks great. Doesn't it? I'm like, I was looking for that. You know, like he, he was, he was the guy that if the, you know, if you had a Gatorade in the fridge, it was gone. 
And but he he was he had no like filter about it, and he never hit anything. So you were cool with it, if that makes any sense, because there was nothing shady about it. But yeah. he was also the same guy where if he had a pie, if he came in with a pizza pie of, of eight slices, and there were a bunch of guys in there, he'd have no problem with the eight guys eating it before he even got a slice. So yeah. he was yeah, he was, was super cool idea. like that. Yeah, he was a great. Yeah, team, he, um, you know, I'm great. Sure. No doubt, no doubt. Um, and uh, that's um. It said that that he, the Powell brothers played a lot of awful lot of backyard lacrosse themselves. A ton, a ton. Like their their idols were the Gates, you know, and, and they grew up in Carthage. And um, Mikey Powell used to put like flour in the backyard as a crease. He used to he used to put the <laughs> crease in, in in flour, and like you know they they obviously ran that grass into the ground. Um, but yeah, that they a lot of similarities. Like when I hear stories about the Thompsons, and I hear stories about the the Powells, there's a, there's a lot of similarities there. There's, yeah. there's an artistic approach to the game of lacrosse. Um, there's so much improv. And when you watch all them play, when you watch the Thompsons, you watch the Powells play, it, it actually is beautiful to watch too, because like the unpredictability and, and not knowing what's next is, 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 you know, one of their calling cards. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I sincerely believe that if, if kids played more, you know, three by, basically three on three net three by three net with a three yeah. on three game, just play it. And you'll be amazed at, at the fact that, that a lot of people can do that. I mean, there's not a per capita, the Iroquois, there's about 15, Darius Kilgore and Red Burnham and I were talking before a podcast once. And I, I said, Hey, can you do a back of the napkin and tell me how many Iroquois lacrosse players there are? And they, they tried to add them up from, you know, Akasasne to, you know, Six Nations, Onondaga, Seneca, so on and so forth. And they came up with around, they thought around 1,500, maybe 2,000 total players per wow. capita. Wow. There's not a population on the no. planet that puts That's out world-class players. It's absolutely unbelievable. There's more lacrosse players in Greenwich, Connecticut than there are in all the nations. Yeah, that's 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 unbelievable. I never would have pegged it. But the ones that play just, you know, they they just, they have such a, an affection towards the game that they, you know, can transcend the sport that that's really amazing. But, you know, you, you mentioned the three by two, like I know older guys that play three by and like, I can see it in their game, how it changes. Like Matt, Matt Bocklet plays a lot of three. I play with him all, and like, all here all the time. He's a great three by player, isn't he? He's a great three by player. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's excellent. So I, I watch him when he plays on the field, like, He's able to make those like kind of quick plays that you can't teach. It's totally right. It's funny because in Denver, actually, Car- Car- you know, maybe you'll be out here working sometime doing a game, but um, every Thursday night they play three by down at Wash Park. And that's where Bocklet goes out. And there's tons of pros that are out there. You'll get Greg Downing and Matt Bocklet and Chris Bocklet, and you'll get Nate Watkins. Um, along with, you know, just, you know, Chris Rotelli will show up on a random night. You know, I mean, honestly, it's a total blast and it's under the lights on a tennis court. And there's about four games going on at one time. And it's just tunes blast. Yeah, that's awesome. And you make it a social, a social gathering. Obviously, if you're 25 and you're playing three by, you know, your extracurricular activities might be a little bit different, just like as a softball game for for older gents. If you're younger and you're playing, you, you do what I did when I was a kid. I used to have, I used to have a cherry Coke and a roast beef sub right, <laughs> waiting for me at halftime. <laughs> exactly. We got the games going in front of my house with my daughter 
I get, I get boys and girls and we just go play. We have all different versions of the games, different net sizes and uh, it's a total blast. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Well, switching gears here, Clark, tell us a little bit about how you got into broadcasting. You know, it's funny. It was 2004. I had a friend who went to Syracuse. Uh, and, you know, in Syracuse, um, for those who don't know, is one of the best broadcasting schools in the country, the Newhouse School. I didn't, I didn't um, major in broadcasting. I was a political science major, or you could say I was a political science minor with a major in lacrosse. I went there to play lacrosse, and I loved every moment of it up there. But I never dawned on me to like, hey, take advantage of the best program the school has to offer, which is broadcasting. I just kind of just fell into poli sci and. I majored in that and, you know, I graduated in 97. I ended up getting a master's in education because I wanted to teach and coach um, in 1998. So I spent another year up there. Uh, and then in 2004, um, someone that I knew from uh, my days at Syracuse was working at CSTV at the time, which is now CBS Sports. Um, he was a young anchor um, there and he suggested you know, because they had an opening for lacrosse, he, they, he suggested that they give me a call. I mean, I had no, I had no training in lacrosse, uh, broadcasting. I had no training in broadcasting um, overall. Um, so I was very green and, and, and novice in, in regards to, um, you know, understanding the, you know, the, the regularities of, of broadcasting or, or, or knowing anything whatsoever um, about it. So, they gave me a call because there was an opening in 2004. The first game I called was Navy against Army. It was up at West Point, so it was an easy trip for me. And I was clueless, and like no one told me what to say, what to do. Like I had no clue what the open was, nothing. I just went in there cold. But I remember like leaving um, the game, like wow, that was kind of a rush that I that I miss because I just felt like you know there's a there was a void kind of in, in yeah. terms of lacrosse and, and not, you know, I graduated in 97, the MLL wasn't kicking around in, in 1997, like kind of went off and professionally tried some, some, some things and, and started teaching and coaching too. So like the, the playing aspect of lacrosse didn't really intrigue me a ton, um, but staying involved in the game that I loved did. So I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. And growing up, like I, I literally watched so much lacrosse on tape and I read every single media guide. Like I could tell you, I mean, I could tell you, you know, who, who won the national title and in, in, in 1984 and who was the MVP in the 86 national championship. And I, I could tell you guys that started for Cornell in 1988, because I literally would like sit there and watch every game and I'd read the media guides. So like the historical perspective of the sport and tying in things that you don't study for in a game have kind of been my strength over the years, just because I've, I've followed lacrosse religiously 365 days a year since I was a little boy. So like the, the, the ability to kind of keep that info in my head and, and, and connect the dots to sport have always been something that I've, I've enjoyed doing. So now I had an opportunity to kind of put it into perspective and, and do it as a, as a career was kind of fascinating. So 
I do that game in 2004 and obviously they weren't sold on me at the time, CSTV. So 2005, they were going to do a full regular season of, of games, like 10, 12 games. And they brought in a bunch of us to audition for the spot. And I ended up getting the spot and the play-by-play at the time in 2005, CSTV was Joe Beninati, who a lot of people know of. Yeah. And Joe was, Joe was incredible because he's such a professional yeah. and he's such a hard worker and an attention to detail. Like that was my first experience of what broadcasting was like. So that's kind of how I've always approached it through the eyes of like Joe Beninati because of how detailed and, and how into it he is and, and, you know, no stone unturned and, and he's, he's always meticulous about his prep. Yeah. So that was, that was a blessing for me to have him next to me that first year. And he taught me a lot too, just like all the little intricacies, the on cameras, the, the, the moments of when to shine, when not to, when to interject. And, and he was, he was maybe the biggest influence I've, I've had along with, you know, guys like, like Patrick Donaher in the early CSTV days. And, and then, you know, the last 10 years at ESPN with guys like uh, John Bissell and John Kettering, you know, those are the, the yeah. four guys from, from a broadcasting standpoint that have, that have been so critical in, in terms of just allowing me to, to grow. But I, I think, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, lacrosse is a sport ever since I, I started watching it, I was beyond into, and I used to just like, everyone would come up to me like, joking around in high school be like yeah you know who, who's the starting attack at you know north carolina if it was you know 1991 maybe it's like you know steve spears john webster and dennis goldstein like <laughs> i knew who was who was playing at at, at brown in in 1992 and when, when steve cavett had 32 saves and and maryland beat brown in that playoff game right like so like i just i would watch so much stuff and i would like i would love like the the stat part of it and just reading the media guides too like that was one thing. Mr. Murph used to get all the college media yeah. guides mailed to his house. So I used to just read them all. That's awesome. I love, there was like not much back then either. Like now, you know, kids don't realize. No, the media that. guide was gold. It was. The media guide was gold. So like when, you know, like, yeah, you know, when you got the, the 1988 Syracuse media guide, I mean, that was, that was gold. Like I, I could, I could tell you the starters on, on, on that team. You know, I, it's, you know, people used to like laugh and, and make fun of me, but Somehow, some way, I've kind of put it into a profession too. <laughs> I kind of feel the same way about my profession. Now, now yeah. you're um, you were able to really transition that into you know sort of this uh, you know part time thing into a full time gig. You're doing other sports now, and um, how 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 is that? You know, as far as learning what it's like to be an ESPN, uh, you know, talent at you know college, big time college football game and stuff. Yeah, you know, I think. For me, it's great too because lacrosse has come a little bit more natural than other sports, obviously. But I think the the key thing with all sports is you got to live in the moment, and the, and the moment is is always the biggest. And like I think the more experience you have, the more that you can capture that moment. So regardless of all the prep you do in lacrosse, regardless of all the prep that you do in football, as you become experienced in the craft you understand that like the moment is bigger than anything that you might've prepared for. And, and the moment can, can differ. It could be something that happened to a player or a coach or um, a moment in time that momentum changed. It could be anything. Um, but at the end of the day too, your storytelling, you know, whether you're, whether you're broadcasting lacrosse or football, 
you know, you, you have a story to tell. Each game is a story. Each player has a story. And I think as a broadcaster, you always kind of want to like humanize the players before you analyze, um, especially in our sport too, that, you know, we're trying to sell this game. I think it's so critical, like to, to humanize and tell the stories of the players. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you have, you have so many people who are, who are just starting off and, and, and watching the game, maybe, maybe for the first time, maybe for the third year, um, to get over, overly like analytical, um, as an analyst, in our sport, it's, it's, it's kind of tough. I think like there's other platforms to do it that are fantastic. Like, you know, I look at like Dan Orlovsky, who I do football with, I think like during a broadcast, he'll sell the game to, you know, maybe a novice football fan, the average fan, and then maybe like a rabbit fan and they'll kind of intertwine all of them. But then he does a fantastic job on Twitter. Like the, yeah, the football right. junkies who want like another taste of it. He'll go like really, really deep. So then like they have the platform for like the guy that wants, you know, overly like abundance of, of, of analytical football stuff. But that's that's an appetite for some people. But I think when you're broadcasting on national TV in a sport like lacrosse, you want to humanize before you analyze. And I think you want to keep it simple for those people. And then there's, you know, things that you've done. Um, you know, you have a platform where you can get really deep and, and analytical and the people that love that know where to find it. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, no doubt. It's it is it is about the it is about the stories. It is about humanizing. It is about who are these kids. That's why you know the ride around with Kark uh, videos are so fun because you really do get to see you know what you're like as a guy and what you know you know uh, Lyle Thompson's like or you know whoever it is that you're going to do. Who's your next one, by the way? Well, this year I've actually kind of changed it up. Um, I've been cutting hair since I'm like fifth grade. So I'm, I'm actually cutting hair while I interview. So I've, I've, I've done a piece with Casey Rose from Utah. I actually know what I'm doing too. Like if I was to cut your hair, you'd have zero concerns, zero concerns. I cut my wife and my daughter's hair. My son's hair is always cut by me. And I, and I take a lot of pride in it too. I, I, I love cutting hair. So I was like, you know what? I've been doing the ride alongs for a couple of years and they're great. And I might continue to do them, but like, I want to, want to mix it up a little bit. What are some other passions of mine that I can kind of infuse in the broadcasts and cutting hair has been, been one of, of, of my passions that I've kind of, you know, done from a hobby standpoint that I'd, I'd love to do. So I, um, I had a piece with, uh, Utah that's going to air. I cut Brian Holman's hair and his assistant coaches were, were in the room while I was doing it. We had a conversation kind of about the growth of, of that program and where it's headed and told that story. Casey Rose is from the state of Utah. He plays at Rutgers. He's in his senior year. He's like a, a world-class big mountain skier. Um, so we told that story Why I, I chopped his hair. He had like a total dude cut that I cleaned him up pretty nice. And um, last week I actually cut Petro's hair. Uh, Dave Petromala was in the, in the chair and that will, will be airing soon as well. So awesome. um, I got three, in, I got three in the hopper. I'm headed to Notre Dame this weekend. I've been in touch with the SID Maybe Kevin Corrigan will let me cut his hair. Maybe he won't. Maybe I'll go after a player. Um, I'll probably do like eight of them this year. I got some other guys in mind too. Like, um, you know, it's a mix of, of coaches and, um, and players too. I want to find like some, some fun stories or when I watch a game, I'm like, wow, that dude's, that dude's a little different. Like I'm watching the Syracuse game yesterday and I've watched, you know, them play. Obviously I watch almost every one of their games, but I don't know if you've noticed, like they have a long stick midfielder, this kid, uh, Kennedy from, from Ridge yeah. with number 17. Yeah. He's like an old school, just, 
you know, he's just all over guys. He's like a junkyard dog. So if, if I go up to Q's this season, I, I think I want to cut his hair. <laughs> I love that. It's a great call. A lot of people yeah. know you, Clark, through Maverick Showtime and your camp that has really become one of the top sort of showcases um, for kids to be able to get looks from college coaches. It's always lined, you know, wall to wall with coaches. Um, but uh, give us a little backstory on how you got involved with Maverick in the first place and then maybe a little bit of updates on how, how your camp's going, and especially in this new age of recruiting that's really changed from really early to more reasonable. Yeah, you know, for me, well, well, there's there's like two two parts of of Maverick. One was the early stages from the equipment standpoint and the apparel, and and John Gagliardi uh, was the was the person who spearheaded that endeavor. And we had a great group group of guys that kind of started that company with him and uh, under his kind of leadership, and and he took the the reins there and, and did a fantastic job. But Maverick back in like 2005, we started with like apparel and, and, and heads and shafts. And, and then eventually um, got into, you know, hard goods and had product developers and um, started getting on college teams. And, and the business really grew to, to the point in like 2010, 2011, that was acquired by um, Bauer hockey. And once Bauer hockey um, acquired it. Um, I stayed on for a few years after that as well. Um, and you really saw like the, the Bauer engine take that company to another level. Um, because I think from a grassroots standpoint, had the right pieces and the right people in place too. Um, John, we call him gags was, was, was great as a, as a president. And we had guys like Jay Jalbert, who was part of the company from, from the, from the get go, Kyle Sweeney, Mike Springer, um, Billy Pym. It was a, it was a really cool, like just bunch of young guys just wanted to start a lacrosse company and it was, it was that simple. And then it grew into something bigger. And then when Bauer took over, um, really did a fantastic job of like kind of just using all their like hockey IP and their structure and systems to get it to another level. Um, and, and then eventually, um, when the company continued to grow, uh, you know, some of us stayed on and, and then it got to a point in, in, in my career where like, you know, after a few years and when my broadcasting career started, um, really taken off with other sports became a full-time job. I kind of segued and, and, and headed in, 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 that, in that direction. Some of the other guys stayed on and, you know, to this day, I, you know, I have great relationships with the people at Maverick, the people at Bauer, um, awesome group. And just, um, it's, it's a, it's a success story. I mean, it just, the timing was right. The right people were aligned. Um, and it was super fun too. I mean, I look back at the early stages of like getting Brown university to wear a Maverick. It's like, we were sitting there like, Oh, we hope we could pull this off. But it was just a, a, a young group of guys who were super energetic and, and found a way to, to get things done. Um, and, you know, over time, a lot of schools started wearing all the Maverick and the cascade deal too, had a, a huge influence because when Maverick was Maverick um, and then was bought by Bauer, eventually Bauer buys cascade. And then you merge Maverick and cascade and cascades had such an awesome reputation on the helmet space yeah. when the two were together you know, got leverage in the lacrosse world and they did a fantastic job with it. So, um, it was, it was a stage in my life that I'm glad I did it because I learned so many things just from a business standpoint that I think I'll have with, with me for the rest of my life. Um, but it also allowed me to, to work with Maverick to, to start the Showtime piece that you, you mentioned and Maverick Showtime is a really unique and, and cool event. I'm not involved in like club lacrosse and I don't coach high school because of my full-time job at ESPN. Um, so the Showtime piece 
is like my one outlet of lacrosse a, a year um, from a non-broadcasting standpoint. And I, there's a group of guys that I, I do it with that that are all part of the 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 showcase from its inception too. So you know, it, it's a team kind of effort too. It's it's not just my event. There's a bunch of other guys involved, and we have a lot of fun doing it too because it's a it's a great outlet for us because. One guy's my buddy from back home, uh, who's an athletic director, who's really not in that whole space of, of, of running teams and camps and tournaments. And um, another guy's uh, involved with, with, with our event, Mike Springer, who went to Syracuse. And um, he's, he's still involved with Maverick in, in terms of the, the sales. That's like his little outlet every year as well to, to be in the grassroots of the sport. So we have this event. We've kept it pretty niche, and I think the reason being is we've always had like this this one field model. So the numbers are a lot smaller than some of these other events. But like this year, if you're like a 2021 athlete, um, September 1st of of that junior year coming up, you're going to be recruited um, in the showcases the summer before, and you're playing at showtime, and you're playing on one field. And all the coaches are there watching you play. And it's not, not an event that we've increased numbers wise ever. We've always kept the same model. It's eight teams. Each, each team plays one game a session. There's three sessions a, a day and there's only one place to find them on, on, on the main field for, for that grad class. So that, that's been, I think, uh, a reason why it's been able to, to keep its, its kind of image, to keep its, its reputation strong. It's because we've never really changed the, the model. Um, you know, the downside is there's probably a lot of kids out there that would benefit from coming that maybe don't come because the numbers are smaller, but the upside is, is, is the event is super cool. And when you're there, you kind of, you, you don't feel like it's a, it's a big event, but you do feel like it's big in terms of like the great play on the field and kids and the coaches that are there. It's, it's, it's a, it's a really cool vibe. And, and, and I enjoy it too, because it kind of allows me to, to watch kids, um, at a young age too. And there's so many of those kids that, that go to Showtime that I end up watching them play in, in college. And it's, it's really cool to, to see them, them grow. And, and, you know, you kind of, you know, this, you've been watching and you, you know, so much lacrosse, it's not even funny. You, you can tell who's going to be a really good player. I think at a young age, to be honest with you, at least in the high school ranks, like does this kid transcend to the college game? And, um, and then you see some kids too, that you're like, wow, it's really weird to see him because I didn't peg him as that kind of player. So it's twofold. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I think that it must be so much fun because you get a chance to watch these kids, get, get to know them, you know, because of the, you know, you're part of the business, you get to know their parents, you know, you, you all these college coaches are around. Usually these coaches are bringing their entire staff too. I mean, they will be like, you know, a whole staff, you know, of coaches. Uh, yeah. Coach and two or three I watch every game too. I, yeah, awesome. for the three for the three days I watch I watch every single game. Like I literally, I don't miss I don't miss anything. I just watch I watch lacrosse the whole time, and I and I it's like the only thing I want to do. Yeah, so much fun, um, and so uh, that's great. And, and let's uh, segue one more time into uh, the last topic, which is this amazing age that we're living in. I want to get your quick thoughts on a few different things, and we'll culminate with college lacrosse right now, but. But first of all, give me your thoughts on lacrosse in, in the Olympics um, and what an impact this could have on the game, you know, global. You know, I've thought about that. And I think the hardest thing for me to kind of wrap my arms around the whole concept of lacrosse in the Olympics is like, I'm, I'm kind of in the camp of like, I want to know how it's going to look, right? Because I've heard so many rumblings, like, is it going to be kind of a blend of, of box? 
and outdoor where there's going to be less players on the field, shorter, shorter regulation type fields. Like what are the rules going to be? Um, because, you know, if you want to have a lot of um, teams play, maybe the, the, the overall like size of the field has to be smaller. The amount of um, Olympic athletes per country have to be less than, you know, regular lacrosse. Speed. So I've heard so many different rumblings. So like, yeah. I think once, once I hear the, the rules, I think that will give me some like kind of clarity. But with that said, my overall belief on, on, on lacrosse in the Olympics is, is amazing. I mean, and it's, it's a, it's a direct reflection of, of all the great work that people have done in this sport, you know, whether it's us lacrosse or the FIL, um, you know, you look at the growth from an international standpoint, when I was in the Tanya Israel, I mean, just like, it was amazing how many countries have lacrosse, you know, went from, from nine to 11 to 22. Then now we're in the fifties. Like, it's just, it's, it's awesome to see. And, and I, and I think that like, you know, us lacrosse has been, been amazing with that. And I think when they hired Jim share, who's had so much experience with, with the Olympic committee and to oversee the FIL and to, to segue that group. I mean, it just was, it was a great vision. It was a great hire. It was a person that knows what, what needs to happen to, to get it to that level. So it's super, super exciting. I, I I'm so excited to, to see the game, as an Olympic sport too, because I think it gives, it gives, it gives a lot of like validation to people. Like when I explain lacrosse to some of my buddies who I broadcast football with, who are, aren't from a lacrosse area, I think when you say it's an Olympic sport, like it gives validity to it right away. You yeah. know, when we tell them that we have our own world games, like, yeah, that's really cool. But like, is a part of the Olympics? So I think like, when it's an Olympic sport and people will turn on the TV and they'll, they'll see Olympic lacrosse. I think it kind of just gives fuel to all those other aspects and arms of the sport, regardless of the rules that come out. But like just from a lacrosse enthusiastic standpoint, um, I, I, I want to see the rules. I mean, what do you think the rules are going to be? I don't know. I can tell you my opinion on if they, if they, if they're adamant about making the, the field size a little smaller and the numbers smaller, then I would like to see uh, an eight on eight with two attack, three middies, two defenders, goalie, same goal size field, maybe more like 80 yards. And then with some kind of an ability to not so much boards, but almost like, you know, almost like a system where if you shoot the ball stays in bounds over the end line and you just play, Maybe make yeah. I think I think that makes sense. I think three poles, um, and you know, I I think it would be an awesome game. It would be a kind of a hybrid game. I think keeping the ball in bounds is awesome. You don't need it on the sidelines, but I think something like that. That's my vision for like the ultimate box field game, and I think it would be a blast. Yeah, and I think so many of the the European countries have like picked up box even before um, field, so it, it would just kind of just give them an easier segue to it as well. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it, the, the great thing about, you know, uh, if, if, if it became an Olympic sport, the game would grow internationally because of the funding, because right now, none of these countries are funded by their, by their countries, by, yeah. by their sports, you know, uh, commissions or whatever, whatever it's called, but sports bureaus are not going to fund the sport until it's an Olympic sport. And once it is, they will fund it. And then all of a sudden <laughs> we're going to see influx of a lot of money and effort, um, and opportunities for the game to grow. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look for the rabid lacrosse guy. Um, 
like yourself or like me, um, you know, you, we don't have to sell the game to ourselves or, or yeah. like our inner circles. Um, but I think when it, when it becomes an Olympic sport, it just, it, it gives kind of the, the cross sport platforms that exist in our, in our country and in our world. It just, it just gives it a, a validity that it, yeah. it doesn't have. Simple, simple, simply put, but that's exactly right. All right. How about this? The PLL, they've made massive waves. What, what Paul Rabel's been able to do from a marketing perspective and a business development perspective and a planning and an organizational perspective is just off the charts. Give me your take on the PLL. Yeah, I'll start with Paul. I think, you know, outside of him being, you know, one of the greatest players ever, the contributions that he's made to the sport are unbelievable. And I'm not just saying on the PLL front. I mean, like he's, he's made the lacrosse athlete, the guy who wants to make lacrosse his living or her living. He's influenced them so much from the standpoint of just like the way that he's marketed himself, the way that he's put himself out there, the way that he's produced his own material. I, I think he's like a hall of famer off the field, what he's, what he's done. And I'm a huge fan of, of everything that he's been able to pull off. I mean, what they've done in a short period of time is incredible. I mean, the rollout of, of PLL is, has been profound to say the least. I mean, if you look at the way that they've, they've rolled it out and the cross platforms that they've been on, not only in sports, I'm talking in main media too, whether it's like Bloomberg or CNBC. I mean, they've, they've hit so many different platforms. Um, it's been incredible. Now I think what people need to realize you can love the PLL and like not hate the MLL, right? Like right. I think that's the, the biggest issue. Like, you know, I'm a big advocate of the PLL and, you know, I'm really stoked for the future of the sport, but if it makes the MLL better and eventually the sport better because PLL up the ante, then we're all winning. There's more guys playing professional lacrosse this summer than ever before um, between the two leagues. Now, am I in the camp that thinks that two leagues can last forever? I don't think they can, but the, you know, the strong will survive. And I, I just think that, that, um, that Paul and his, his brother, Mike, and the group that they put together, whether it's the coaching um, backgrounds of some of these guys and, and just the team that they've assembled. Um, it's really, really powerful stuff. I mean, for a pro athlete to be able to do this and have the business acumen and wherewithal to, to understand what the vision is here. I mean, he's up the ante in the sport of lacrosse. These guys already whether you're playing pll or mll are going to be paid way more they're going to be full-time athletes in the pll um they're getting equity in the um in, in the in the business so like there's so many different aspects of of what he's doing um that's incredible you know so i i'm really i'm really excited for the pll um i think that um it's going to be great for lacrosse too just because you know the way that they're going to get behind their athletes too, and, and the marketability um, that they they have and and understand moving forward too. It's going to be really cool. You know, a lot of people think that the the tour based model in team sports, um, you know, could be challenging because of the affiliation team sports have always had with like particular cities over time. Yeah. But I also think that we live in a day and age where like the athletes. Um, because of social media and, and because of branding, um, sometimes could be the draw, right? Like 
regardless of a, of, of a, of a team that LeBron James is playing on, like he's the draw and that's not to dummy down anything in the NBA or the, or the teams that you root for. But I think now more than ever, um, athletes power and branding has a touch point with the fan more than it's ever had. And I'm not saying there's no touch point with, with cities and teams and organizations, but the touch point there with the athlete, because of the way that media has kind of blossomed and changed over the years, I think it's, it's more relevant now than ever. So I think this tour base is, is a great opportunity for lacrosse fans across the nation to kind of get the bug and what happens down the road happens down the road. I mean, you know, will they stay tour base forever? Well, they could change the model, of course, but I actually think for, you know, in the initial years of this, the tour base is, is probably the way to go. I mean, five years from now, would my, would my opinion change? Maybe, but I think this is a great way to start. No doubt. I mean, listen, when I uh, was at the university of Denver in 2000, I, I needed to figure out a way to get, more more home games and so i had this idea hey let's do the uh let's get four teams and we'll um we'll sell sponsorships we'll sell tickets i'll sell the tickets for like 30 bucks each i'll guarantee you know we'll make this happen we'll guarantee flights and hotel rooms and in the first year lehigh and maryland came out to the very first denver pioneer face-off classic in 2001 and air force air force joined us and it was a tour-based model where people were psyched that they were fine with paying you know paying it to come watch a, a weekend of lacrosse and I think there's yeah, didn't, all over didn't the Air Force beat Virginia one year? Didn't Air Force beat Virginia one year? Air Force and Denver beat Virginia in the 2004 uh, face-off classic. The Air Force beat them on Wait, the Wait, Virginia, Virginia left with two losses? They did. They, well, we were, wow, at least they got their flights paid for, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, so but I, that's I just think, it, Jamie. Jamie, that's just it, though, right? Like, people yeah. knew this was an opportunity. I think Syracuse went out there one year, too, didn't they? In, like, 03 or something? Yeah, they came out um, in uh, 02. 02. Yeah, they, they played Air Force, I think. They played, um, they played Air Force on Saturday, us on Sunday, and we, we lost by a goal. It was packed. There was like 3,500 people at that game. That's Mikey what I mean. Like, people knew, like, this is my opportunity. This was. is my opportunity to see Mikey Powell. It was. Well, guess Mikey what? Powell this is going to be my opportunity there. to see Paul Rabel, to see Jordan Wolf. you know? Exactly right. And I'll tell you right now, the Chancellor Ritchie was at that game. It was a beautiful day in early March, March 10th or something like that, 2002, 70 degrees. Chancellor Ritchie said, we need to have a stadium. And at that point in time, the talks went forth, and which ended up being the $6 million there you go. stadium. So you, you couldn't have had that stadium without, without that. You couldn't have no, that stadium without that. It's just a natural progression, right? That's exactly right. That actual day. That actual day, Mikey Powell, you know, scoring three goals in the fourth quarter to beat us. We had the lead in the fourth quarter. Matt Brown had a hat trick wow. in the game. Yeah, he was a freshman. Matt Brown was. Oh, wow. That's yeah. awesome. So speaking of the last, the, our last little segment here, um, you know, it's really, truly like a golden age for college across too. I mean, the level of play, I love the new rules. It's so much more fun to watch teams trying to score the entire time. Um, you know, give me some thoughts on where your where your head's at with the beginning of the season. I love it. You know, I, I think the shot clock is is awesome from the standpoint that now there's something tangible that like a new fan can kind of yeah. catch on with, right? I mean, to explain to a, a normal sports fan that knows nothing about lacrosse, like, hey, when it's you know at the referee's discretion, when they feel like they're not attacking the cage, they can nail them with the timer on. I mean, like to have a tangible shot clock is great. Yes, but I think the the two things that I think are really changing the tempo of the game, 
but I'm not dummying down the shot clock at all. Mm-hmm. It's actually like the first stage of the shot clock. I think the 20 seconds to clear the ball is huge. Like every game that I watch now, like you better have a plan in place if you're clearing the ball and you better have a plan in place if you're riding because you can steal a couple possessions here and there just based on that. So the 80 second shot clock is great. I mean, most teams are generating offense. You know, if you get over the midline, like asking someone to get a shot on goal with 70 seconds, you know, that's not the, that's not the hardest thing in the world. But I think when you couple that with the fact that you have to get it over the midline in 20 seconds, and if you get it over in 19, you only have 61 to shoot. Like I I think the clearing aspect of the clock in the 20 seconds is, is massive. And every game that I've watched, like I'm seeing teams ride real hard. I'm seeing teams like, 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 Sometimes they're either like really strategic about their clear or they're in panic mode. So like there's loose balls, there's more up and down. That's huge. Um, obviously having the clock there just to simplify things is, is massive too. And, you know, you, you don't want to have it in the ref's hands. Like the, the refs do a fantastic job in our sport. Like you rarely hear me rip a ref. Like they yeah. have a tough job. They had no business dictating pace of play in the past. Like that, that's, that's not that's any it. other sport that should not live in our sports. So we have a clock now. It's great. The other aspect of shrinking the boxes, I think is really big too. And if you, if you watch the way teams sub now, man, it's really hard to, to play like that prevent defense where you send a D midi, like waiting in his, his own team's defending restraining box. Like it's hard to do that now because the, the box shrunk. Yep. So I think the rules are, are unbelievable. The one hot topic that we have here is, is obviously the dive and it's driving people crazy. I'm on the record and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to say this. I'm an advocate of the dive. I think the language of, of the rules a little tough right now. I wouldn't be surprised down the road. They change it. And the only downside to this dive, obviously the, the, the downside is, 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 is out there that you'd never want to see anyone get hurt. Like I'm not into goalies getting trucked or hurt. Like I'm not saying that whatsoever, but I think that the, the downside to this rule is we took away one rule where it was at the discretion of the refs. Now you're asking a ref at a moment in time where he's officiating a game to kind of track the plane of the attacking player. And if he dove away from the goal mouth, that's really hard to do in like, you know, an instant time of in a game, right? Like instantaneously call the game and then like track how the player has, has dove. That's really tough, Jamie. So, like, right. I've seen goals that I'm like, okay, as much as Pat Spencer's goal was insane against Rutgers, he didn't dive away from the goal mouth, did he? No. And was he pushed or not? You know, because I feel like yeah, that's the other piece. When you look how high it is, that's the other piece. I think everyone's yeah, everyone's complaining about um, the the young kid uh, at Syracuse, Griffin yeah. Cook. Did you see the goal against Army? Okay. Like where he he came across like. Yeah, there was some contact in his back, right? So the refs didn't call it. I was at the Yale Penn State game. Mac O'Keefe has the ball. Yale is up eight seven. Okay, he goes to the rack. They call him diving towards the goal mouth. It's not only not a goal; it's a penalty against Penn State. Yale ends up going up nine seven. So there's the rule. I think on a, on a few levels is tough. One is you penalize a diving attackman where like these refs had to confer with each other and it took them a couple minutes to not a couple minutes, it took them 20 seconds, which is actually a long, long amount of time. Yeah. It took them 20 seconds to figure out like the call. If it took 20 seconds to figure out the call, then I'm not convinced they knew exactly if it was towards the goal mouth 
or not towards the goal mouth. And the repercussions were Penn State goes man down. So, like, they didn't make that call with conviction. And now the flip side of it, since yeah. they called on O'Keefe, the attacking player, they're man down. So, like, I don't like the man down aspect of it, too. Like, yeah. you know, you have so many of these iffy calls. If you're going to call it against the offensive player, I, I think a better way to do it would be, like, defense is ball. No goal, defense is ball on the side. Like, for a team to go extra man – when the attacker dove towards the plane, unless it was like egregious and it was like, you know, unsportsmanlike like conduct. I think it should be, if you run the goalie, like, like, like in boxer cross, if you like try to take out the goalie and it's obvious, you're like running the goalie out of control, taking out the goalie, then that should be a penalty. And uh, that's the rule. That's the way the language is. What? Yeah. That's the the language of this call. And the language of this rule needs to be cleaned up. It should be more towards goalie protection. Oh. Not the angle, not the angle in which the attacking player dove, because the angle in which the attacking player dove could, in a scenario, not infringe anything in terms of a goalie's health, or it could, depending on the scenario, right? Like a player could angle. dive. Yeah, like you. Depending could, on where the goalie. If you re- yeah, if you really read this rule too, Jamie, you want to know the craziest thing is if Jamie Monroe had the ball behind the cage and the goalie was pulled. And the goalie took a nap at the restraining box, just for argument's sake. And Jamie Monroe, on an empty net, decided to dive with no goalie in the goal. And if you dove, okay, a- towards the goal mouth, you could get a penalty. Yeah, that's crazy. That is. I mean, that's like that says it all as far as the wording and the rules. I mean, the way I look yeah. at it, there's goalies coming out to initiate contact. And if, when that happens, I don't think there should be a foul. I think if they're going to initiate contact and try to play you physically, then I don't think that there's anything to talk about. If you're going to sit back and try to be a goalie and they dive into you, I think you could call it a penalty. And I think that protect would- the goalie. Like the, the committee needs to come together and just say, what is, what is our intent here? What's the intent? It's pretty simple. Protect the goalie. So let's make a rule where if, an offensive player makes an egregious act towards the goalie, right? Or, or if he, he leaps towards the goalie, he does something malicious towards the goalie that could possibly harm the goalie. It's yeah. a penalty. Right. It's that simple. No one wants to see a goalie hurt. Like, here's the deal. Like, I, I've been on the record saying, like, I'm all for the dive. Like, I'm not all for goalies getting hurt. But, like, the way the rule is written, that's, it's going to be a problem. Because yeah. like you could you could argue like if Penn State goes eight eight in that game, it was in the fourth quarter. Like yeah. they ended up going down thirteen eight and then they like came back. Like that changes the complexity of the game. You could have a game in the final four, ten ten, a guy leaps, refs aren't too sure. They confer for twenty seconds like they did in the Yale Penn State game. They tag the offensive player with a foul. So now yeah. instead of going up eleven ten, you're now man down and you lose a game. It's a big swing, no doubt about it. Yeah. Well, the so, one thing about college cross right now, I'm really happy with the other rules, though. Yeah, I, great. I think they're awesome. The one thing about college across right now is we've got a couple of generational players, and there's a lot of great players. But the last thing I want to chat about is is Pat Spencer and Jeff T. Two very, very different players, but honestly, I've never seen at the collegiate level anybody better at what they do in in their different ways than those two guys. Yeah, and they're different ways, like. I would say watching the sport of lacrosse since I'm a little kid, the two attackmen that I just felt like I would pay to watch any day, anytime, Mikey Powell and Lyle Thompson, just from a creative standpoint, yeah. Pat Spencer and Jeff T in their own way 
have their, their niche. And I think that's what you're trying to get at, right? Like Pat Spencer is playing the attack position like an NBA basketball player does. Like all of his moves and everything that he does, it almost looks like he's dribbling a basketball. And like, this is a kid. I spent a lot of time with him um, this fall. I, I went down to Loyola for a day and we were in the basketball gym for over an hour. We were on the field for a while. I sat in his locker room and interviewed. I spent the whole day with him. Like yeah. basketball is at the root of everything this kid does. He shoots hoops all the time. He plays pickup all summer. If you watch him play lacrosse, he's basically dribbling a basketball. All his mannerisms, like I don't know if you saw the goal against Hopkins where like he went on the guy, kind of jab, stabbed the guy, backed up and yeah. just cranked it lefty. That's yeah. James Harden on a that's James Harden on a fadeaway. Like that's what he does. Like so I think he has a style that's different than anyone I've seen. Like Mikey Powell had a style that was different than anyone I've seen. Um, Lyle Thompson was unique and one of the greatest players I've ever seen. He had a little bit of Mikey in him, but I think he played more of a leverage balance game where Mikey played like a frenetic, like Dyson cut you up game. Um, Pat, yeah. Pat Spencer is playing hoops on a lacrosse field and his vision his confidence and the, the most underrated part of his game is his, his size. Like he's a man out there. This dude's yeah. like six, three and like just getting his body into guys. And like, he just, he just understands the space. So like he understands that whole leverage game that I'm just, I'm so fascinated in watching him play. So he's terrific. I mean, he's, he's, he's a next level, next level talent. Jeff Teat to me is like, you know, more about box. Uh, th- than most people. I don't know a ton about Fox, but I will tell you just watching him play, like he's got to be one of the, 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 the biggest prospects of, of all time, right? In the indoor league. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, watching him play this past summer in the Minto Cup where he had 14 and 14 in the first three games <laughs> kind of said it all. Yeah. He shoots. Yeah, I mean, he's just, he shoots with yeah, he's so, so like none other. His feeding is off the charts. He, he makes plays even physically that you're like, how did he just withstand that? This guy was just destroying him, but he's just, um, he's got a feel. He's amazing. He's amazing. You know what he does better than most kids I've ever seen? Like here's a smaller guy, but I've never seen like a kid in one motion, like get hacked and make that wrist pass in one. Like he makes these passes where like guys are beating his bottom hand and he throws like a dark crisp pass to a teammate. It's, it's amazing. Like, the, the the one thing with Teat, like I look at him from a skill standpoint, like I love watching his him play and like his game's amazing. And I think like he's, he's a generational type talent for sure. Yeah. Um, the one thing that like, I I'm, I'm kind of curious about is like how he will handle this season if he doesn't get the ball. Yeah. And I know Cornell fans are sick and tired of hearing about that, but it's yeah. the reality of it because yeah. like to, to me, we've seen so many great players, you know, you played with Darren Lowe, right? Yes. Yeah, didn't teams try to shut him off? Um, by the end, they did. When he was a freshman, when I was yeah, so. well, yeah, okay. So by the end, yes. Were they successful doing it? No. no. Lyle Thompson, everyone tried to shut him off. Mikey Powell, everyone tried to shut him off. Pat Spencer, people try to shut him off all the time. Yeah, great players don't allow it to happen. And and I, and I know Cornell has a philosophy where you know they'll play five on five, and that's great. But like. I don't think from a competitive standpoint, he can, he can tolerate that. And maybe he doesn't tolerate, maybe he does, but like, I I don't, I don't think, and and I'm only saying this because selfishly, I want to see him play at his best all the time. I don't want to see him 
you know, go off to the corner of the field and because he's getting shut off, you know, chug a bottle of NyQuil and go to sleep. Right. Like I want to, I want to see him in the action selfishly all the time because he's that good. That's it. You know, like I think he does, he does things. Yeah. He's a totally different player. He actually, you know, when I look at players, like I love Grant Amen, this kid from Penn State. I was at the game. He was two and seven on fake and you know, they weren't fast break points and they weren't man up points. He was a phenomenal passer, but I've seen phenomenal passers before. Um, Michael Sowers is unbelievable from a dodging standpoint, but he, he's a lot like Jordan Wolf. I don't know really who's like Jeff T when I think about it. Like, who is like him? Like, who does he remind you of? You know, having watched a lot of box lacrosse, I, I can't really think of anybody that has his combination of ability to shoot. Is John, is John Tavares a little bit John like Tavares him? probably be the guy. And, and I just didn't watch him enough, uh, you know, yeah. to really know. But, yeah, he would be the guy I think that everybody compares Jeff T to is John Tavares. Um, more athletic than you think. Um, the thing with T is this, is that he's not physically 6'3". If he was 6'3", he'd be doing – you know, what, you know, John Grant Jr. does um, if, or what Pat Spencer can do. It's just not his game. He's not a put the, he's not, you know, and he's not like, you know, a two-handed Grant Amen. He's a great player with the ball, but he's, he's ultimately just an incredible player who's great at kind of doing everything. And he probably is, you know, it is a smart move to shut him off. And I do hate it when I turn the game on and <laughs> he's being shut off. It's more fun when he's not. Um, but um, I just find it fascinating that we're, we live in this. I mean, there's so many great players you, you mentioned. I mean, there's so many great attackmen too. I mean, any other year, like yeah. any other year, like Michael Krause is, in, is a first team all American, but like, you know, he, he, he's, he's in a dog fight to be a first team all American this year. When you have, when you have T, you have Spencer, you have Sowers, you have Amen. Like, do you know what I mean? Like the list goes on and on. It's, it's, yeah. it's crazy how many, how many good attackmen are out there. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's great to see, but I, I do agree with you. I think T's different. Like in all the years watching college lacrosse, I don't, I don't see a lot of guys like him because he's a smaller guy, but here's the other thing. You never see him get pushed around either. No. He just, he's like Gumby and he soaks checks. You talk about that. He just soaks it and just knows how to use, talk about leverage. He uses leverage as well as anybody. He just lets you kind of push on him a little bit more. And then next thing you know, he's by you. And he's a little more athletic than I think you think, Like he can run by people and the way he fakes and the way similar to Spencer. I mean, you know, the way these guys fake slides away and buy themselves time, you know, I just feel like those two guys, there's, there's a lot of great players, but I think those two guys in their own way and very different, are as good as I've ever seen at what they do. And, and, and because of the way that T plays, I'm not sure if he's going to be a Tawaraton winner because uh, he can't put a team on his back one-on-one. Um, but I've never seen anybody do the stuff that he can do. And Pat Spencer is obvious. I mean, that guy is as special as they come. Really? Yeah, uh, this, is, this, is, this is an attack group. The last few years, it's just like it's ridiculous how loaded it is. It really truly is. Hey, Clark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Anytime, my man. And uh, have a great season. And um, you also, real quick, you have your own podcast too, and it's called the Overtime Podcast. And you just did one with Coach Tierney. It was an amazing podcast. Um, do you have, what, what's your next one coming up in case listeners want to hear more of you? I have a couple on the hopper. I do it with U.S. Lacrosse, and we've had uh, Coach Tierney. We have Lyle Thompson. Um, we have Taylor Cummings, Miles Jones, and one that I'm I'm anxious to to drop is is Mikey Powell. Whatever happened to him? That should be the title of the podcast. Love it. 
Well, Kirk, have a great yeah. day. Have a great season. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. The Philocrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son must utilize video to learn his game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com.